Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello, everybody. Hi. Recording live from somewhere. What's good, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Skates and Plates on the Hockey Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brandon Rewicki. Well, from good vibes and ecstasy in Toronto on Saturday to a major hangover with no Slurpees or Advil in sight on Monday, what a roller coaster ride here in Winnipeg over the past few days in Jets Nation. We'll break down the loss at home to Montreal in just a sec. But we will go back to better times and talk what may have been the best game of the season for the club in that win against the Leafs on the weekend. Plus a couple other notes to get to. Kevin Chevaldeov spoke with the media Monday. Interesting timing. We'll get to that later on and what that means for the team's plans at the trade deadline. And Ray Ferraro, we were lucky enough to be blessed by his work as color commentator on the Jets broadcast against the Habs did his mid-season report cards on the Jets during one of the intermissions, and some surprising grades were handed out, so we'll get to that too. But unfortunately, we got to start here diving into whatever the hell that was against Montreal. I, I saw on Twitter a couple of beauties. It was uh, Johnny Oduya night. Hey, wait, Pie Day was Sunday, not on Monday. That game brought to you by Domino's Pizza. <laughs> I don't know if the Jets have turned the puck over more than what we saw in that game against Montreal. And I guess you give a little bit of credit to the Habs because they can make life miserable on the forecheck. But that really felt like it was self-induced, all those mistakes. It, it felt like Winnipeg, if they had just found a way to be better with the puck in that game, they, I mean, at the very least, for sure get to OT, let alone probably win it in regulation. You know, it's pretty rare to actually pinpoint each of the goals against outside of the empty netter to just singular plays, singular moments that went wrong for the Jets. But that's exactly what happened there. I mean, the first goal, Andrew Cobb makes a bad play with the puck, a bad pass. And then to exacerbate the mistake, I, I thought at least Derek Forbort could have just jumped on it right away and, and probably poked it away from a diving Josh Anderson. But he kind of hesitated and... You know, a little bit of indecision, and it allowed a, a pretty easy play for the Habs on the first goal. But again, a very avoidable play right from the get-go. Then you have, and we'll get to Josh Morrissey in, in just a second here, because he was definitely, and I, I would imagine the name that's probably trending in Manitoba right now, just a, a brutal clearing attempt 
And pretty easy work from that point on for the Habs to score on the power play there. Again, just a mistake. And if the Jets had a do-over on that one, Montreal doesn't get a goal as well. And the third goal, you know, Morrissey, he kind of gets a little bit of bad luck with a bouncing puck there at the blue line. But again, he probably could have made a better play on the puck. And then Neil Pionk with just the... And this was a pizza pie of all pies thrown right up the middle there. Like, if you're going to turn it over, I guess I guess go all out, apparently. That's what he did on that one. A 3-on-0 in on Connor Hellebuck and no chance. A great move on to Foley. And that was basically curtains for the Jets of the night. But just three plays right there where if you... And it's not even like you have to make incredibly intelligent plays or incredibly skillful plays with the puck in those scenarios. It's just manage it. Like you normally would. Manage it like an NHLer would. And the Habs don't get three gimmies. And an easy two points on top of it. So, I mean, we're 350 into this episode. And that sums up the game as a whole. Like, there wasn't really a whole lot more to break down from a Winnipeg perspective for me. It's just they made three awful plays. And that's what turned the tide. I don't think it was the worst game of the season for the Jets. But it certainly wasn't their best. I mean, they. there's been some games, there's been a, a decent amount of games this season in losses where the Jets have been a tire fire defensively. And you're wondering, oh boy, is this the same team that struggled in their own end for basically all of last season? It wasn't that. It was just really, really poor plays with the puck. So, I, I mean, if you're going to lose, I guess you'd rather lose like that. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, I thought the Jets were okay in their own zone when they weren't throwing the puck blindly up into the middle of the ice but hopefully it changes in a big way by the time these two teams hit the ice on Wednesday night because that chase for first place is still up in the air for the Winnipeg Jets and you also don't want to give the Montreal Canadiens some momentum as they try to dig their way back after a bit of a slow start these past couple of weeks now I mentioned it earlier and there was one guy that everybody was talking about during the game, and then after the game. And it was Josh Morrissey, obviously. He just, he had easily his worst night of the season. I mean, one of the worst games that we've seen him play here as a pro in Winnipeg. It was just a tough night for him right out of the gate. Just struggle, you could just tell. And and sometimes guys have nights like that, and there's not really a whole lot you can do, where it just looks like you're fighting the puck right from the get-go, and you just gotta battle through it somehow. And, and sometimes you can make those kind of break-even nights. You know what I mean? But other times, most of the time, it ends up what we saw over 60 minutes Monday night against Montreal where you could tell Josh Morris he wanted to dig himself a little bit of a hole and, and just hide for a bit. He just didn't make a whole lot of positive plays all night long. You know, I was excited when we saw DeMello and Morrissey together Saturday against Toronto and, and the team as a whole played so good. And you're thinking, okay, you know, maybe if the Jets can figure out this pairing, things start to work themselves out inside their own zone over the next 28 games. And it just it was a complete 180. And it feels like we're back to square one with that top pairing. But what to do with Josh Morrissey right now? To me, there's no doubt that Paul Maurice... Kevin Chevalier have to have some major concern with how their number one defenseman, how their highest paid defenseman is playing right now. And the scary thing is that this is no recent phenomenon. Even the biggest Josh Morrissey supporter would say that it's not just this season. 
It's all of last season as well, the playoff run, all of it. We're talking almost two years now that his play has been in a bit of a funk. And look, some people will point to the contract. Josh Morrissey signs the big money deal. And since then, his play hasn't been the same. While that's true, I think that's more coincidence than anything else. I mean, he's a stand-up kid. He's a, And that's what makes this so much harder, too, is that he's one of the nicest pro athletes you could ever be around and, and just a really, really good dude. And so you're cheering and you're hoping that he can find a way to get back to where he was you know, a few seasons ago now. But to me, the most damning thing is that since the Jacob Truba trade, we have not seen the same Josh Morrissey that we did his first couple of seasons in the NHL. I mean, look, those two, and it's kind of funny because I was watching in between the the Jets-Habs game, I was watching Rangers-Flyers, and these two are on the same brave brain wavelength so much that Jacob Truba played not nearly as bad as Josh Morrissey did, but he had his own struggles as well. But it's just interesting that those two have been split up, and each of those players have just been nowhere near the kind of guys that they were when they were put together. And Josh Morrissey hasn't been able to reach that same level of play and or find consistency with a number of different defensive partners in that time. Now, I thought last year, to me, it looked like Josh Morrissey was trying to do too much. At least for the first half of the season, it looked like, you know, maybe there was a little bit of added responsibility that he felt on his shoulders that, you know, I signed this big money deal. I'm the number one defenseman now that Dustin Bufflin's not coming to town. I have to try and, and do everything. And and sometimes that gets in players' heads. And I thought that was what got Josh off to a pretty rough start the year prior to that. And I thought as the season went along, he slowly, slowly got better. And then Dylan DeMello comes into the fold. And although it was a brief time, I, I thought we were starting to see the Josh Morrissey of old. Not the best performance against the Flames in the playing round. And then this season, not paired with Dylan DeMello a whole lot outside of these last couple of games. Bolu, Pullman, a little bit of Niku, a dash of Billy Hadela thrown in there as his defensive partners. And to me, it's been more of the same struggles. Although this time, I don't think Josh Morrissey is trying to do too much. I think now, albeit last night was an extreme example of the most epic proportions, I think Josh Morrissey's biggest problem right now is moving the puck. I think it's when the puck's on a stick. You know, I, I don't mind his decisions inside the defensive zone when it comes to locating the threat, when it comes to stopping plays, passes out front, all that. He's a really intelligent, heady player. And I think those parts of the game just come naturally to him. And he can kind of read and react as opposed to thinking too much. There's just not a lot of confidence in his game right now when the puck's on his stick. And that's a, a crucial, critical problem for your team's number one defenseman. And this is the part to me that people always forget. There's, I don't know if it's revisionist history or this preconceived notion that because Josh Morrissey is a, you know, a, a quote unquote smaller defenseman. That he's great moving the puck up the ice and he's a little more offensive minded. Jacob Truba was the primary puck mover on that pairing. When it was Morrissey Truba, you know, generally Jacob Truba was the guy that was making that outlet pass outside of their own zone. He was the guy that would carry the puck up the ice and, and try to get a rush going the other way. 
And that would allow Josh to kind of sit back a little bit and, and pick his spots. He, I mean, he's more than capable of of making great passes and, and skating up the ice with the puck on his stick. I'm not saying he can't do that. It's just that he wasn't the primary guy doing that on a defensive pairing. And that was Jacob Truba's greatest strength. And that's why those two worked so well together. So that, to me, is what needs to be one of the primary determinations when Kevin Chevaldeoff picks up the phone and tries to get potentially a big name here to Winnipeg, a blue liner, they've got to be able to move the puck. I still don't think there's enough of those on this team. And I think another one would, and now I'm, I'm not saying, you know, get, you know, a Sam Gerrard type of defenseman. I'm just saying that if someone is to come here, they need to be able to do that if you're going to play them with Josh Morrissey this season. He just looks like he needs a little bit of help there and, and maybe... A safety net beside him could give him a confidence boost because let's face it, Pionk forward have been pretty solid all year long. Neil Pionk has clearly been this team's best defenseman as well. So I think you feel pretty confident with that as your second pair. I think there's enough solid blue liners here in Winnipeg right now that you can piece together a good third pair as well. It's just if you can find a way to get Josh Morrissey and X, right? someone beside him to give you a legitimate top pair, then the Jets become a really scary team. And then I think it's an interesting conversation as to how far could they potentially go in a playoff run in the North Division and maybe beyond as well. So yeah, not a whole lot to sing home about in that loss against Montreal on Monday, but there were a couple positives to me. Number one, and the most obvious Kyle Connor can shoot the damn puck. <laughs> you don't need me to tell you that. I mean, you watch it and it's pretty obvious. By the way, I should say, look, KFC is a great handle itself. And, and Matt Hendricks nailed that one. So I, I get KFC being the go-to whenever Kyle Connor scores a goal. But let's be real here. His nickname should and eventually will be. It should be the Colonel. If I was Kyle Connor, I would prefer the Colonel. Plus, it's a little more family friendly. So I'm just saying, if we can get the Colonel pumping up here, let's go with that over KFC. But, I, I mean, those are two. It's what he does best, right? He will not play well at his own end. Kyle Connor may make you want to tear your hair out some nights. But then you see that second goal in particular, and you're like, oh, yeah, it's good to have a guy like that in our team. It's, it's, good, to, it's good to throw the puck over on the power play. And allow a shot like that that maybe four or five other teams have in their lineup. And unleash that on the opposing netminder. So a great offensive performance from Kyle Connor. Great to see. But we already knew that from the Colonel himself. Like we knew that the Colonel could unleash the biscuit. But to me maybe the most promising development. And, and the other positive that I'm going to highlight from last night's game. Is Logan Stanley is here to stay guys. You know, I, I actually had a conversation with my neighbor about this. And then last night's game unfolded and it just kind of cemented it to me. But you can't take this guy out of the lineup right now. And it does look, hey, it, it sucks when a guy gets injured and hoping for all the best for Nathan Beaulieu. And you hate to see a guy lose his spot due to an injury. But to me, if you're just going to compare those two head to head, I don't know how you don't go with Logan Stanley in basically every facet of the game. And I never thought I would have said this going into this season. 
He's a better puck mover. I, I, I like what Logan Stanley's doing with the puck on his stick. He's he's keeping it pretty simple out there. And even in the offensive zone, he's not afraid to fire it. You know, it may not be the most effective play all the time, but he certainly gets the puck towards the net consistently. I think he's better defensively than Nathan Beaulieu. And he moves damn well pretty good for a six foot seven guy. So I I guess as we look forward here, even to me when Nathan Beaulieu comes back fully healthy. I don't know how you take Logan Stanley out of the lineup. I, I think he's your third-pairing defenseman for the rest of the season, barring you know a couple of additions at the trade deadline. But even if it was, say, Ekholm slash Savard that was picked up, to me there's no reason you can't go Morrissey, trade acquisition as your top pair, Pionk forward, and then Stanley DeMello, I guess, would be your third pair. That That's a damn good third pair. There's not going to be a lot of third pairs in the NHL that are better than that. And even I thought, you know, if it came down to it, Stanley Pullman looked pretty good last night. And, and I feel good with that as the team's bottom pairing right now. So either way, to me, Logan Stanley, with how well he's played this season, and you take into account that he's basically a rookie still, you would think he's only going to get better as the season progresses here. Yeah, he to me he's here to stay. He's on he's on that third pair, no matter if Bolu comes back healthy, or Sammy Niku or somebody else wants to get back into the lineup. It's been a great one of the kind of underrated feel good stories of the season so far for the Jets. The team's been playing great. There's been a, a ton of noteworthy individual performances across the league, but to me Logan Stanley's development from unlikely NHL player to solid third pair guy with the potential for more down the line maybe if he if he continues to progress like this it's been awesome to see and and great for the kid totally deserves it apparently he just revamped his entire training regimen and became a complete pro in the offseason and that's great to see so logan stanley i tip my hat to you great job young man you know, I kind of like this positive, feel-good vibes we got going on right now. So let's completely ignore and push away that Montreal loss. Let's head back to Saturday night in Toronto. One of the most talked about and hyped up games of the season, in my opinion. It was pretty cool to see on the Twitter timeline, not just Winnipeg and Toronto get it involved, but a bunch of big names, a bunch of big personalities across the the sporting world were ready and tuned in and dialed up for Jets Leafs. And I got to tell you guys, I was a little bit nervous going into it because the Jets have a propensity in those Saturday night sports net games, the whole nation's watching to craft the bed a little bit. But boy, did they ever avoid that and deliver, in my opinion, their best game of the season at arguably the most critical time. I, I just thought from top to bottom, the whole 60 minutes thing, you know, played for 60 minutes, that's always been a bunch of crap to me. But I thought the Jets actually played a full 60 minutes. I, I I just don't think they gave Toronto a whole lot the entire game. I mean, one of the more explosive offensive teams in the NHL, and they barely cracked 20 shots. I mean, Laurent Brassois played really good, but again, I don't, I mean, they didn't need extremely solid goaltending like they have for the most of the season. And in those other two games against the Maple Leafs as well, I just thought they were damn good. And that is the peak of what the Winnipeg Jets could be. And I, I can understand people getting really excited after that game thinking, I mean, if we can bottle that up and unleash it in the playoffs, potentially in a division final against Toronto, 
there's no reason that we can't beat the Leafs. I can understand a lot of fans feeling that way. So the game itself Saturday, I mean, it capped off an absolutely critical three-game series against Toronto, getting five of six points against the Buds. And I don't know if there's anything sweeter than tied in the third period in Toronto looking to make a statement that you throw three up in a row there and Toronto has no answer for it. So just a, a absolutely awesome, awesome game Saturday night. Hey, sign me up for a seven-gamer between those two teams. I, I just think it would be tremendous hockey. But it certainly put the Jets, looked like they had them in a good spot going into this week. Bit of a rough start, but hopefully they can back to the game they had against the Leafs because they controlled play for the first time in four games against the Leafs all season long. So at the very least, you know, as the, as the matchups between those two teams continue to increase as the season moves along, the Jets can go back to that game and know that, all right, we're not going to get horrifically outshot and outchance every time we go up against these guys. We're every bit as good as they are, and especially if the Jets can grab a big-time defenseman or two, it would make things pretty interesting heading into the stretch run. So just a great, great night Saturday night. We'll get to Kevin Chevalier's comments in just a second here, but I do want to touch on what I saw. I think it was during the second intermission of Jets Habs Monday. But Ray Ferraro doing the color with Dennis Bayak on the broadcast, also doing intermissions double time, and he gave out his report cards. Because if you could believe it or not, we're already halfway through the season. So it was the mid-season report card player grade rankings. I did my quarter poll rankings a little while ago. And I don't know if a whole lot has changed from my rankings then to now. But I thought it was just interesting to see what an actual professional <laughs> in Ray Ferraro thought of how certain members of the Winnipeg Jets have played so far this season. So, I mean, for the most part, I don't think anybody would be too surprised at the majority of the rankings. Connor Hellebuck gets an A, maybe instead of an A-plus because he won the Vesta last season. So, tough to improve on that one, but he's been tremendous this season. Uh, Mark Shifley was given an A-plus by Ray Ferraro. Yeah, I mean, I, I would probably go A, but you're kind of nitpicking at that point. But, I mean, the, look, if you're top five in scoring in the NHL, I won't quibble too much with an A plus or an A there as well and I think Mark Shifley's defensive game has gotten better as well so A plus I'm okay with that Nick Ehlers was given an A I would go with an A plus for Nick Ehlers and I still think that he should be getting closer and over 20 minutes of ice time but that's a discussion for another episode uh some interesting forwards at least Kyle Connor was given a B plus I believe I don't think I would go that high I was closer to around a C and his quarter pole rankings. I mean, it's kind of weird to say that 25 points in 27 games, you know, on pace for like 40 goals during an 82-game season. That's maybe just a CC plus. But I don't know. I, I still feel like we haven't seen the best out of Cal Connor just yet. So, I mean, maybe maybe a B, B minus, something like that. I just thought a B plus was a little bit high. I, I just don't think it's been the, the greatest season for Cal Connor and hey like all of you guys I'm sure we're all in the same boat here just a little bit stronger defensive play and then we'll bump that up to a B plus and an A and then things get really interesting with that Jets forward core Blake Wheeler given a B I would go a bit lower than that I mean he's been way I mean miles better than that first eight ten games to start the season 
But again, to me, it's kind of like in the same realm as Kyle Connor, where has he been bad? No, I wouldn't say that. But I think you just kind of expect a little bit more out of some of your upper echelon players. Paul Stasny, I believe, was given a B as well. Hey, I'm I'm on the Paul Stasny bandwagon. I, I'm leading the President's Club, the fan club. So I'm I'm pretty much always going to give a Paul Stasny an A for for anything he does out there. Uh, but Ray Ferraro, a little more stingy on that grade. The one that kind of surprised me the most, I'll get to him in just a second. Uh, but Mason Appleton and Andrew Cobb were both given B pluses. To me, no argument there. I might even bump that up a little bit to an A. For both of those guys who have been just tremendous all season long, especially Mason Appleton in that series against Toronto. The kid was just dynamite there. But the one that really stood out to me, at least, was just a C for Adam Lowry. Maybe I'm out to lunch here and and I'm wrong, but I actually have been pleasantly surprised by Adam Lowry's game this season. I thought the Adam Lowry as a third-line center thing was over and done with. I didn't think he could be that guy anymore. And complete, I was completely proven wrong on that front. He's been he's been a driver pretty much all season long. And I've been really impressed with his play. I would have been well above a B, let alone a C. For, for me, it's a B-plus as a starting point for Adam Lowry. And I'd be willing to go a little bit higher. So I was just surprised that, again, Ray Ferraro, a little bit stingy, on his forward grades for Adam Lowry, who I think has had a really, really strong season. The defense is where, again, things get interesting here. Neil Pyong given an A+. A, no arguments there. Derek Forbo was given a high grade. No argument there. The, the one that stood out more so than anyone, and we've talked about him a bunch on this episode here, but Ray gave Josh Morrissey a B on the season. I, hey, look. Ray Ferraro has forgotten more about hockey than I'll ever know. And he's the best in the biz as a color guy, as an analyst. But I would be hard-pressed to find a single Jets fan that would give Josh Morrissey a B grade for his first 28 games this season. And I'm not just talking about, you know, let's take the disaster that was that game against Montreal out of it. The Jets are still trying to find a way to get a lot more out of Josh Morrissey and get him back to the player he was a couple seasons ago. So I, I would love to know Ray Ferraro's reasoning behind Morrissey having to be. Maybe it's the fact that his partners haven't been the best so far this season. But that one took me by surprise more so than any of the others. You know, I would go as far to say that I, I bet the fan base, if they had to pick a letter grade for Josh Morrissey this season, I would say more, I, I would say it would be C- to DNF as opposed to CN up. I, I especially from I just sent out that kind of innocuous tweet during the game that Josh is struggling with the puck tonight, and basically every comment was just tonight, only tonight. I'm like, okay, easy. It was just an observation. But obviously, Jets fans are hoping for a little bit more out of Josh Morrissey. Let's hope he officially earns that B over the last 28 games and however many more are to come in the playoffs. Now, Kevin Chevalier's comments with the media, he breaks his silence. That's coming up in just a second. But first, the tournament is finally here, days away. The brackets have been set, and the teams are ready to hit the court. And DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy, is celebrating with their largest free college basketball survivor pool ever. Oh, boy. 
Survivor pools are deadly. I love survivor pools. How big? How big is this survivor pool? $1 million in total prizes up for grabs. And if that's not enough, check this out. When you enter the free, that's right, Manitoba, I know you love free, the free DraftKings $1 million survivor pool, you could get a shot at winning $10,000 for every upset through the first two rounds of the tournament. Easy to play, just pick one team per day, that's it. If they win, you survive and advance to the next round. Last person standing is the winner. Remember, you can only pick a team once for the entire tournament, so choose wisely. And as always, DraftKings is a safe and secure app. You can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. Get in on all of this week's action. Download the DraftKings app now. Enter code THPN during sign-up and enter the free $1 million survival pool. Again, that is code THPN to enter into DraftKings' free $1 million survivor pool. Eligibility restrictions and terms and conditions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. You have to give that a go. I'm definitely making that happen. I mean, free is one thing, but survivor pools are just awesome. So check out DraftKings. It's an easy way to make a couple of bucks. Doesn't take a whole lot of work. Kevin Chevaleoff, well, I, I've teased it enough. We're going to get to it here before we close out today's episode, okay? Now, I'm not going to play the audio. Why? Because I like you guys. And I'm the one that went through the audio of Kevin Chevaleoff. Look, good general manager, great general manager, whatever you think of him. Not a absolutely outstanding listen. He, he, he just He does it well. He doesn't tip his hand. Boring. Let's just be honest. Call it what it is. But honestly, if, if I was to have a GM or if I was to employ a GM, that's the kind of speak I would want when he steps up to the mic and, and talks with the public because you know you're not going to get a whole lot of information. But the little bit that we could glean from it, and if we're going off of past precedents as well, what stood out to me about those comments is first and foremost for everybody excited about the trade deadline, Winnipeg, to me, is going to make multiple moves. Not just one, but multiple moves. I believe that either Matthias Ekholm or David Savard will be a Winnipeg Jet. I, I really believe that. I think one of those two. I think Chevy is going to make a bit of a swing for the fences move there. And then I also think that another, at least one other guy is going to be added. Probably a centerman, at the very least a forward up front. And I'm okay with that. You know, we had Jim Toth on, uh, my old buddy from the big show, along with Troy Westwood a little while ago. And he had mentioned, you know, if you think the team, and if you look at the contracts and, and the age and everything that's going on right now, if you think they that this is your window and you have a chance now, this is the time to kind of push all your chips in. And if that includes moving a first-round pick, if that includes a prospect or two going out the door, then so be it. That's just the price of trying to be competitive right now. And I do believe Kevin Cheveldayoff feels like the window is back open for his team. Whether or not you as a fan believe that, that's one thing. But I do believe that management and coaching think that, yeah, this is the time that we need to grab a piece or two and, and try to go on a little a little bit of a run here. On top of that, if you look at Kevin Cheveldayoff's past work at the trade deadline, I mean, as far as I can see, going back to 2015 even, he's made a move at every single trade deadline. 
whether it's a seller or a buyer, I mean, doesn't really matter. The point is he's been active at every single one, at least one trade. It looks like over the past five trade deadlines and a number of those when this team was competitive or trying to make a push, they grabbed multiple pieces. I mean, you go back to 2018, Stasny the big one, but Joe Morrow also acquired from Montreal as well. The next season, Kevin Hayes. Hey, maybe that one didn't work out so well. But the big move was made. Matt Hendricks brought in as well. Parlinholm brought in as well. My biggest regret, Bogdan Kisilevich could never become a full-time Winnipeg Jet because that handle is one of the best in NHL history. I love me some Bogdan Kisilevich. And then Nathan Bolio acquired as well, right? So if we look at what Kevin Cheveldayoff has done in the past, he always makes at least one move over his last several trade deadlines. But most importantly, when his team is in the mix, he makes not one, but multiple moves to give his team a little bit of help. Even last season as well, when the team was on the bubble on the outside looking in, Cody Eakin traded for, Dylan DeMello traded for. So expect at least two moves. I think we're going to get at least two moves from Kevin Dayoff. The other part of this, and this is the really intriguing thing, that we're going to see every single Canadian team try and go through here. But I think that Kevin Chevaldeoff and Kyle Dubas especially, maybe even Ken Holland out there at Edmonton, I think their trade deadline is going to be at least two weeks earlier than the actual trade deadline. If you give up multiple high picks or a high pick and prospects, if you pay a steep price... This year, more than any other, you need that guy in your lineup immediately. You need to get him acquainted with the teammates, with the city, everything that goes along with a big move like that. And and maybe more so than anything, I mean, you got to give them a bit of runway before the playoffs get underway. But like we saw with Pierre-Luc Dubois as well, there's the potential for, A, after 14 days off the ice quarantining, that you could potentially injure yourself and and then you're out for the playoffs or some length of time anyways, right? Like Pierre-Luc Dubois still is almost trying to get his sea legs under him to an extent right now. So you need to push that concern aside. And on top of it, you don't want a guy missing, I mean, two weeks off, that's at the very least five games. You're probably looking closer to seven with the way the Jets schedule is set up right now. Like, you want to try and gain ground on Toronto and push and and create a little bit of separation ahead of Montreal and Edmonton and Calgary on top of it for a no doubt about a playoff spot. So I I do believe that specifically Kyle Dubas and Kevin Chevaldeoff are going to make some moves and make them right away. On top of it, the Jets, I mean, they've got, I think, just under 3 mil in LTIR cap space with with Brian Little on long-term injured reserve. You can't bank that. You don't get more and more as you get closer to the trade deadline as you would normal cap space. Once it's gone, it's gone. It's over and done with. So I do anticipate Kevin Chevaldeoff making a move sooner rather than later. So that's what I got from his comments. It's tough to say, you know, the way he's speaking. Is he going after Ekholm? Is he going after Savard for a big defensive piece? I don't think he tipped his hand one way or the other in that regard. My personal opinion, and I've said it before, and I'll continue to say it as we move along here, Ekholm is the guy, no doubt about it, for me. I think David Savard would be a good addition. I think he would help the team. 
I think he would help the penalty kill tremendously. I think he'd be their best penalty killer right off the bat. But if you're looking for a guy as a top pair defenseman besides Josh Morrissey, I just think Ekholm checks all the boxes. And interestingly enough, I actually think he's kind of comparable to younger Jacob Truba when he was here in Winnipeg. I I, I mean, it, look, call it a gut feeling, whatever it is. I think that Echo Morrissey would have a decent amount of chemistry between each other. And I, I think there could be good things. And if the asking price, I believe it was Elliot Friedman who came up with this. If the asking price is just a first round pick in Sammy Niku, Kevin Chevaldeoff should have made this trade yesterday, guys. You don't even hesitate twice. I mean, even if that was the rental price, I'd be down with that. But if you're getting a playoff run and then another season of Ekholm for just a first-round pick in Sammy Niku, screw the Kraken in the expansion draft. Just find a way to get that done, and then you worry about that in the offseason. I find it hard to believe that's going to be the price. But if Nashville's high on Sammy Niku, then maybe it is. Maybe that's all it would cost the Winnipeg Jets or, you know, another prospect you know, a, a B or a C level prospect thrown in as well. But I would definitely go out of my way to make sure that Ekholm is the guy that's brought in here. Plus, if you make the move a little bit sooner, you know, you don't allow that price to maybe jack up a bit with Boston and Philly and some of these other teams down south sniffing around that might be a little more desperate even than the Winnipeg Jets, some of those teams that are in and around the bubble in those east and central divisions. The other thing when it comes to the trade deadline, to me, the perfect trade deadline would be Matthias Ekholm coming here. And I, I don't know. I would have to look at Nashville's roster here quickly to see if maybe there's a, a fit in terms of, hey, if we're going to make a trade for Ekholm, why not try and you know grab somebody off Nashville's roster and then you know we're done all our shopping in, in one fell swoop. That's what I like to do when I'm at the store. Just, hey, let's just get it all done right now. But the other thing that I would love to see the Jets go after and what I imagine Kevin Chevaldeoff tries to pull off is grabbing a another centerman. And you don't even need to get a high-end one here. This is just strictly a guy that's going to be likely on your fourth line, a.k.a. a improvement on Nate Thompson, a Nate Thompson replacement. And with all due respect, I don't think that's going to be overly hard for, for Kevin Chevaldeoff to find. Now, on Nashville, I don't know if that guy exists, to be honest, especially if you're looking for a pending UFA. I mean, maybe Brad Richardson, but again, how much, is that even an improvement over Nate Thompson, 36 years old? I, I don't know if Nashville has the guy Winnipeg's after, but if you could get a fourth-line centerman who's just solid, right? Like, just a solid guy, you know, not Adam Lowry, but not Nate Thompson, but somewhere in between, right? Then at that point, you would have your trade deadline acquisition, your fourth line center there, who would be joined by Lewis and Perot. That is a, a pretty, that's a pretty good fourth line right, right there. And, and you know what? The Jets have had a pretty good fourth line over the last little bit, solely because of how great Matthew Perot has played this season. So if you could get an improvement on Nate Thompson, that to me is the dream spot. And then you would have a little bit more depth. You know, you would still have Jansen Harkins, and some of these other guys ready to go if need be. But that, to me, would be one hell of a deadline for Kevin Chevaldeoff is grabbing Matthias Ekholm and then grabbing a fourth-line center to go along with it. And maybe, you, you know, you just pick up a depth forward 
here or there just in case, you know, in case of emergency, break glass, those kinds of guys. But that to me is the shopping list, is to get Matthias Ekholm, get a fourth line center, and then we can revisit the old who is the best team in the North Division talk that kind of gripped the nation over these past couple of days. Well, that's going to do it for another episode of Skates and Plates here on the Hockey Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brandon Rewicki. Thank you so much for joining me, guys. We're back at it on Friday. We'll break down the rematch against the Montreal Canadiens. Hopefully things are much smoother this time around and a little less pizzas thrown about, although I've been in the pie mood over the last little bit. Pie Day Sunday. You better damn well believe it. I crushed a medium pizza myself. And then we had that talk with Red Ember last week. By the way, make sure to check out Main Street Slice, their new location, which is opening up on March 31st. But we will break down that game against Montreal. And wouldn't you know it, we also have one against the Edmonton McDrysidles to break down as well. The Oilers are hosting the Winnipeg Jets on March 18th. That's on Thursday. So we'll break down that one. A fresh game day breakdown for you guys coming up. And another food interview as well. It's going to be a jam-packed episode. Can't wait for it. Again, thank you for listening. This has been another episode of Skates and Plates on the Hockey Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brandon Rewicki. Peace.